0: Off the Ball It's actually quite an ugly game um, from spectators' point of view but I think that the whole of Ireland doesn't really care
1: (laughs) Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball
2: Now then, you're very welcome back. We're going to go through the Sunday papers. Very happy to say, live in studio. Conor McKeown is with us of the Irish Independent, covers GAA, and Clina O'Connor as well. Uh, Clina, an All-Ireland winning goalkeeper with Dublin, All-Star, and now making her way in the world of coaching. You're both very welcome. Thanks for coming in. Okay. I'll give you the back pages first of all. And so like a dearth of Premier League, as you can imagine, given the circumstances. Roy McElroy there on the back page of the Mail on Sunday. Moving day for McIlroy. This is at Wentworth where... Both McElroy and Shane Larry are right in contention. They're just starting their final rounds now. We have Sun Sport. It's a picture of Marcus Rashford and Eric Ten Hag with his arm around him. You're the Ron that we want. And so Eric Ten Hag has set Marcus Rashford a target of 20 goals this season. And it's claimed, writes Richard Moriarty, that Manchester United's players think the team better off with Rashford playing up front as opposed to Cristiano Ronaldo. The sidebar, by the way, on the Sun. Uh, Lineker and uh, quite a few others uh, accusing football of missing a chance to celebrate the Queen, but also John Egan, it seems, could make a move to West Ham in January. So West Ham looking at paying £12 million sterling for 29-year-old John Egan. They were trying to get him in the summer and they're going back for more in January. Uh, The Mirror then, United Front. Again, this is uh, football and its return to action. Football prepares to resume Tuesday with tributes planned and supporters expected to act with respect is the headline, back page of the Mirror. Picture again of Rory McIlroy here, this time on the Sunday Times. Rory on the charge. So he was brilliant yesterday. He kind of played himself back into contention with a, a brilliant, I was going to say third round, but of course second round. It's a 54-hole event at Wentworth, given uh, the events of the week. So McIlroy won off the lead at PGA Championship. And then alongside that, the main story on the Sunday Times front page. Uh, Chelsea. Chelsea. I PSG sporting director to help Potter so Chelsea are interested in hiring Luis Campos he's 58 years of age he's at PSG he's Portuguese and he's quoted as being a world acclaimed football expert and in fairness his reputation is pretty impressive he built his reputation at Monaco and Lille who twice uh, put together sides that stopped PSG winning the league on title so what did PSG do? Swoop in and buy him how the world works in football and then we have another back page for you. This time Sunday World pool need to clop on. And this is uh, Jurgen Klopp facing what the Sunday World describe as a crisis. Also in this piece Kevin Palmer says there are suggestions Liverpool's players are bemused by the decision of Klopp's assistant Pep Linders to publish a book revealing the inner secrets of the dressing room. I didn't read that book. I don't know to what extent secrets are revealed. I would have thought it would be Enough. I saw Didi Human was uh, making similar points during the week. I, I haven't seen any great revela- revelations in that uh, Pep uh, Linder's book. And then the piece also says all eyes will be on Anfield Tuesday as Liverpool supporters will be asked to take part in a tribute to Queen Elizabeth with Reds fans booing the UK's national anthem on their recent visits to Wembley. Sunday independent finally then. Uh, brilliant picture of Roy McIlroy, blue skies above him as he's teeing off. McIlroy makes a move, uh, fired up Rory, chasing Euro to her glory. And then beneath that, supporters group urges uh, refunds for fans. Uh, so given the cancellations of the weekend, supporters group saying some kind of refund for fans would be good. Uh, I'm not too sure what's happening next weekend on the Premier League front. Just turning inside to the Mail on Sunday, briefly, page 93. There is now uh, a worry that next weekend is under threat, not so much as a a cancellation out of respect, but just the logistics of Operation London Bridge and all the policing that will be required for the Queen's funeral on the Monday morning, Monday the 19th. So what that means for Premier League games, especially in London, over the weekend is in question. Millwall, who uh, obviously are in that neck of the woods, they're playing Blackpool on Saturday and they've said that game is absolutely going ahead. In London, Spurs take on Leicester half-past five. Sunday has quite a few London fixtures. Brentford play Arsenal at two. Chelsea-Liverpool is at Stamford Bridge half-past four on Sunday. There are two other games on the Sunday, Man United Leeds and Everton-West Ham. The Everton game is in Liverpool, so as to what extent they can go ahead in light of logistics, I don't know, but uh, they hadn't really banked on missing two rounds in the Premier League, that's for sure, already a very condensed calendar.
3: Yeah, well, they're under pressure and... Um You know, the whole thing about the Premier League fixtures this weekend became a bit of a, I think, a cause, um, celeb for people who kind of want to put it down as maybe a bit of a culture war between these uh, different sports, Um, particularly when the other sports in England did go ahead. Um, But I think the Premier League would have left themselves up there to be shot at had they gone ahead, particularly was the Queen, was a patron, I think, of the FA. Um, So I think if those games had gone ahead, because of the media coverage that they garner and, the, I suppose, this overriding feeling that the whole of Britain should be in mourning at the moment. I think the Premier League found itself in a pretty difficult position of making that decision whether to plough ahead or whether to, to go to the wall. And I think, like most people, I expected those games to be cancelled once it happened.
2: So, But I just thought everything would be cancelled, whereas the golf at Wentworth continued, Premiership rugby continued, cricket continued, horse racing is on today. And it was interesting, in 1952, I was reading when King George VI died, it was the opposite. Football continued and the more established sports, uh, establishment sports uh, stopped. And it was the same in 36 when King George V died. But there's been a role reversal here where those more establishment sports have continued, football has stopped. Uh, Apparently, I was reading, there was just a 20-minute meeting on Friday and as was kind of mentioned there because the Queen's a patron of the FA, they said, well that's us done, that's the decision made, so there
0: we are. Well, maybe maybe that was the, the bit that sort of forced them into the decision, but I would have thought as well it was all or nothing, at least for one weekend. Mm. Um, I do get the piece around London about the, the policing and like large-scale events, I understand that. Um, but definitely one weekend you would think it's, if it's the whole of society should be in mourning, well then, it's the whole of society. It mm. should be a blanket thing, but... Um, I don't know, but maybe it, the the F.A. did the right thing. You know, maybe that's, exactly. she is their, or was their patron, so
3: yeah, fair enough. I think, like, a lot of people, um, my understanding of what was going to happen was informed by that epic piece in The Guardian that a lot of people read from about five years ago, yeah. London Bridges Down, um, and the protocol for when the Queen died. And brilliantly detailed and compelling though it is, I'm not sure it necessarily played out like that because, you know, it painted this picture of, you know, the moment that it is announced and all the screens in the world go blank and people stop in the street and farmers put down their sites and everybody. But I think quickly what you came to realise is that, you know, okay, maybe the BBC One and BBC two marched, but people have 950 channels now, you know, and, and as a global event, like today is September the 11th, for instance, right? So when that happened in 2001, I think we were all a little bit more... Everything was a little bit smaller, and I think things did genuinely grind to a halt. Whereas, um, if anything, I think we, I don't think we kind of really hold those leaders in as high esteem as we used to. Maybe that's a generic thing to say, but like between royalty and presidents and popes, I don't think this is quite the seismic event that a lot of people were expecting it to be, and that's in evidence by the fact that across Britain there are lots of sports being played today. But the other element to that when it comes to the Premier League, and somebody else made this point, I'm, I'm, I'm ripping it off, I just can't remember who said it, rugby and cricket will not be criticised for going ahead by maybe some of the more right-wing media in Britain, whereas I think football was leaving itself open, the Premier League was leaving itself open um, to that kind of a criticism, mark a market disrespect, if they didn't cancel it.
2: Mm. I did read that as well. Maybe there's something in that. They're used to being criticised and <laughs> didn't want to take the chance. So let's jump in then Sunday papers. Uh, I have it in front of me and I guess it's, it's uh, amongst the front page coverage as well. You're seeing Rory McIlroy across the board. Really in the absence of Premier League, it was one of the few bits of live support on yesterday. And uh, you both looked at the Live Golf coverage i suppose um there's a patrick reed interview in the sunday times which jumps off the page and then paul kimmage is over at wentworth and he's just been trying to i don't know what feel just how real the beef is between the live golfers and the establishment golfers so he's writing about that in the sunday independent connor i know you're a big uh, golf fan Cleaner, is this uh, a sport you've been following over the last 18 months and this live controversy
0: you kind of have no option, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's now it's it's now made golf a little bit more interesting or topical for people like me who would be aware of who wins major tournaments that I wouldn't sit down to watch a whole tournament. You know, basically just listen to my dad and he tells me what happens. But yeah. it's brought it to it's brought it to a whole different level of dramatics, which maybe. Maybe some people in sport like like it and let's stoke it a little bit and if there's other documentaries and things gonna happen in the future, maybe th- this is all part of of changing the image of golf, making it a bit more dramatic.
2: Mm. Yeah. So Patrick Reed is on page three of the Sunday Times. Apparently this is a two hour interview with Tom Kershaw. It's not a big piece, but certainly he's come out fighting and he's livid with the way he's been portrayed by the media, he's livid with the way Other players have talked about him, including Roy McIlroy. I feel like Rory making those types of comments is insulting, is what he says of uh, McIlroy's conduct over the last couple of months. The headline is the malice and deceit to say that about me is just ridiculous. Now, he could be talking about any number of things, be it his family or the cheating allegations or the stealing allegations. Uh, He kicks it off by remembering his four year old daughter coming home from school, uh, very upset because uh, she's been bullied because of his reputation. Nobody likes your daddy. Your daddy's a bad person, he said. It felt like someone had stuck a knife through his heart. The piece, uh, do you know how hard that hits you as a father? Uh, Reed asks his voice rising in anger despite the episode being four years ago. She was getting bullied because of me, all because of what's written in a piece uh, or in a paper. It's fake and it's fictitious and it's wrong. I can handle a lot of things, but that's the lowest blow you can get. And he says of the PGA Tour, the narrative is he's a horrendous person. He's a cheater, a liar and a thief. Now I'm a murderer. That's in reference to the Live Golf Saudi venture. Now I'm a murderer and everything else on earth. And that's not okay because it's not who I am. And so this is his first uh, interview since he signed with Live Golf.
3: Well, one of the more revealing parts of the interview is... um this paragraph, Tom Kershaw did the interview and he says, Reid believes the narrative against him was concocted insidiously eight years ago after he proclaimed himself one of the top five players in the world after claiming his third PGA Tour title at 23 years old. And There's a quote from Reid, it rubbed some people and players the wrong way I guess, me making comments like that basically gave them a reason to be basically like this is our black hat, this is a guy to put down as a villain and he's our target, which to me shows a remarkable lack of self-awareness from Patrick Reed, because, um, you know, I don't even remember that being a particular issue, you know. I I
2: remember it at the time. I remember he won and he was asked, you know, because it's your third victory and you're so young amazing and in his interview, like this is on the green when he's just won, he said something like, yeah, look, I think I have unbelievable talent and I sort of see it like it's me and it's Tiger and one or two others. You know, I feel like a top five player in the world. And at the time, I mean, his memory's playing tricks on him. I distinctly remember the commentary team almost lauding his sense of confidence and wow, look at this guy and his, and his, and his inner belief, it's amazing. So I, I, I don't think that's the moment you can pinpoint the golfing world turning their back on, on Reed.
3: No, like a lot of people might sort of Impressions of Patrick Reid were formed by the chapter in Shane Ryan's book, *Sling yeah. the, the Tiger. And it was an awful lot of it was about his upbringing and about his college golfing career, which, good and all as it was, was mired in controversy as well, specifically around the question of cheating. Now, that's something that Patrick Reid addresses here. Mm. Um, and but, stealing. And stealing, yeah. and Again, he denies that. And again, like stealing is one thing, but in the sport of golf, like that, that's so enthralled to its own rule book, like, cheating is literally the worst thing that you can do. Like, it's, it's, you know, the end of the world. And the fact that when he was last caught cheating at the Hero World Challenge, like, such a tournament to be looking for an advantage in a bunker from. Like, you know, this is like a pre-season friendly and trying to, to, to cheat, even though there's were ranking points and, you know, money, obviously, at play. But he's also suing Brandon Chambly, who a lot of people who watch golf would, would know as possibly the best analyst in golf for 620 million dollars which is as bizarre as it sounds um, and there's the issue with his parents as well and, and you know w- nobody knows what goes on in other people's families and that's fair enough but um, you're probably not gonna get too many admirers if, if the subject that you're speaking about is your popularity which Patrick Reed is here well having a restraining order against your own parents isn't going to really um, boost your popularity, I think, amongst most people in the community.
2: Well, it was really memorable when he won the Masters a couple of years ago. And like, he's a hometown kid winning. So there should have been like scenes of ecstasy on Mm -hmm. the 18th. And it was a very lukewarm round of applause. And there were golf feature writers a few miles down the road at his parents' house as they watched on television, documenting like the heartbroken parents watching their estranged son win. He does address this situation in this piece, and he never talks about his family, really. And what he says, Is the things I had to encounter growing up as a kid? It's not something that there's really a time or place to talk about. At the end of the day, it's horrendous to sit there and try and tarnish a major victory like that. Shows the abuse of power the media had right then and there. They make up stories and say, "Oh look, he's even turned his back on his family," and that's not true at all because they know I'm not going to talk publicly about it, and it allows them to stir anything they want, and that's not okay. So that's as close as he's come to addressing the family situation. I don't know what's going on there. Clearly, so there's the estrangement. There's the cheating allegations, the stealing allegations, the sense of a personality that's a little bit brash and not, not very self-aware, not very uh, likable,
3: po- not particularly popular with other golfers as well, which takes undoing. You know, it's a uh, well, it was put to him that
2: there was that famous ESPN. Uh, Survey. They do this in golf. It's actually great. We should do this in all sports where they anonymously survey the golfers and ask them questions like, which fellow pro would you be least likely to help in a fight? I mean, we need a GEA version of yeah. this if yeah, you yeah. want to uh, do that, Connor, <laughs> anytime soon. And he finished second last after Bubba Watson. So of all the players, if they saw you know being assaulted in the car park, he was second bottom on that list. Although he says, I've never had any negativity from any of my fellow golfers, which again... That kind of sums up uh, Reed in a way. He's sort of saying, oh, no, look, I've never encountered this kind of negativity. But like literally at the Ryder Cup, Jordan Speed stopped wanting to play with him. And then Reed went and publicly called out Jordan Speed in the press conference. I was there for not wanting to play with him and made this situation incredibly awkward as Jordan Speed kind of looked at the ground and said, oh, I'm not being drawn on that. So, like, there is a kind of lack of self-awareness about Reed as much as anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, he clearly... He clearly has baggage, you know, when he's uh, anything, whatever's going on with his family. I mean, we've we've no sense of what that is, but he's describing it as horrendous and something he's not willing to talk about Uh, when he was uh, younger an adolescent or whatever. But then so you go to college then and you're obviously a good golfer and the accusations of cheating and all this sort of stuff. So you would imagine that this narrative of the world is against me kind of suits him. Because that's a way of no 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 none of that ever happened, and yet trouble seems to be around me. But it's everyone else's fault; it's not my fault. Um, so I'd say the more he the more he promotes the everyone's out to get me, and I'm the the villain of golf suits him maybe, and allows him to deflect from some potential cheating or stealing allegations or. Rule breaking on his behalf in the world of golf.
3: What's remarkable about it for me is that Patrick Reed, whatever way he wants to dress this up, has always been seen as a a bit of a like an anti-hero in golf. One of the lesser, you know, as you said, when when he was in the final round of the Masters in 2018, you know, he's from Georgia, like he's he's from down the road from Augusta, and he was in the final group with Rory McIlroy. And the the roars for the two of them in the first tee would tell you everything you need to know about the popularity there. Mm. But what 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 remarkable and what might lead on to another piece here is that despite the fact and the, you know all the issues of that that feed into his lack of popularity are addressed in the interview. Despite all of those, um he still didn't come in for nearly the same flack about the Live Tour as Gray McDowell. Um because Gray McDowell opened his mouth and spoke a little bit too much and spoke a little bit unwisely about it, which is probably the most interesting part of Paul Kimmage's piece today um, from Wentworth. When he says, he, like, Paul is in Wentworth and he was keeping an eye on the dynamic that, that's at play because this season that has fe- featured the civil war in golf has been leading up to this moment in a lot of ways um, when some of the live players and the PGA players were actually going to be on the same course at the same time um, outside of a major and there's already been a lot said Normal players like even Shane Lowry who would be you know like he would he would he would as he says himself he he shies away from um from um co- uh, not controversy but um confrontation. confrontation he was very vocal about this on Wednesday and about his relationships with the players but um what's interesting in this part is when Paul speaks to Gray McDowell he kind of accepts himself that his biggest um, his biggest sin in all of this was actually trying to explain his position, you know. Because yeah. anybody you've ever met that comes across Gray McDowell will tell you that he's a very likable person when you meet him in the flesh. Um, but for this, for about three or four weeks at the start of this Live Golf Tour, he became um, a bit of a punching bag for some of the some of the silly, sillier things that he was saying in public very ill-advised comments given the subject matter that was being at play and the, the seriousness of the topic you know such as it was in the, in the grand debate yeah. um, but no it, it's interesting that he, he seems to have the penny seems to have dropped there like I haven't heard a, a whole pile from Graham McDowell since those initial comments whenever they were five or six were they five or six weeks ago yeah. um, so he seems to have figured that out
1: The Sunday Papers
3: on Off The Ball.
1: The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.
2: Well, I think McDowell's probably had 20 years of continual good press coverage. Mm. And I suspect around the time of the Live launch, he felt very confident in front of media and had a history of charming media and thought, well, I can talk these guys around. And suddenly he's talking about Khashoggi and uh, you know various aspects of the Saudi regime, and two minutes later he's still talking about those things, and he's just digging deeper and deeper, and it's a it's a mess. And that's day one of several where he just keeps on talking to the media, and he seems to have realised that you can't reconcile being a role model and everybody saying what a great guy you are, and taking the live golf uh, money when you're very aware of the sports washing intentions. The Pulkinish piece, it. it Chronicle's various quotes which have been out there all week from McElroy and from Lowry and various uh, things they've said over the last while. I guess where it is very striking and interesting is when he clocks McDowell Tuesday lunchtime. He exits the players' lounge and sees Rory for the first time chatting with Jay Monaghan from the PGA Tour. There was a time not so long ago when he'd strutted across to join them, but he's em- his embarrassment is palpable as he almost slinks by. And then... Uh, it talks about uh, Wednesday, the eve of the Pro-Am and McDowell is practising his chipping and putting and he says, uh, Paul image writes, that one of the amateurs runs across to shake his hand. It leaves a mark on him. He goes back to his work chipping and putting for 30 minutes around the green until he can't avoid me, writes Paul Image. Hello, Graham. Hello, PK. How are you doing, I ask. He laughs. I feel like Lance Armstrong when you were chasing him. Uh, we chat for a moment. He tells some golf riders a day later that he would not change his decision. His only regret about the last three months is that he talked too much. Paul Kimmage says, I wanted to send you a text. Shut the F up. You should have, he says. We walk back towards the clubhouse. I ask him his first uh, round tea time. It's 7.50, right? Yeah, I'll see you in the morning. He seems surprised. Are you coming out? I remember what you were, I smile. What I am, he says. That's um, McDowell not quite giving up. Uh, his sense of self or his,
3: um, his golfing
2: aspirations. An interesting but it's quite element.
3: sad, really. It is, an in, but an interesting element to all of this is that um, Netflix are making a documentary about this year in the PGA Tour and when that was announced l- last year or early this year, like a lot of people I was trying to figure out, when I saw the list of golfers that were participating that, that would be mic'd up on the fairways, I was trying to figure out like what's going to be interesting about this. Like Because if you take your average you know, top 10 American, particularly, particularly a lot of the Americans, they come across as being very bland. A lot of them were kind of college jock golfers. Their life experience mightn't be, you know, there's very few sevies in there, for instance. Um, I'm not sure what kind of documentary it would have been without Civil War breaking out. But now that it did, it would be a far better far better documentary because it's the biggest thing that has happened to golf in a long time. and you know, it, it's very easy for us, the general public, to decide on the on the part of righteousness and the PGA Tour over live golf, but, you know, you only had to watch golf regularly over the last few years to to get the sense that the PGA Tour is a very sort of manicured and cosseted organization, you know, and, you know, the interviews with the tournament sponsors and it, it never really felt like it was, it was always enthralled to itself, you know, it always had that feeling as well, um, and, Obviously, the threat that's coming at them is one that it's very hard to get around, you know, a, an organization that just wants to throw money endlessly at it. Mm. Um, but it, it, has, like it, it, it has changed what it's trying to do. It does seem to have accepted, like it has found all this extra money, you know, in the form of PIP payments to the players who yeah. basically moved the needle to use the American sort of colloquialism. So, I, like, in some ways it has been a good thing. Oh, Phil Mickelson's doing a lap of honour media tour now see? <laughs> see? I told you they would money. And for people who would be interested in watching that documentary, and I think it will be a huge thing um, when it does come out because... Um, and this might lead on to a piece that Joe Brawley has written today about the Magic Johnson documentary, um, They Call Me Magic. Um, A lot of these big streaming companies are investing in sports documentaries and have done increasingly since uh, maybe ESPN started with the 30 for 30 season. Mm -hmm. But between The Last Dance um, and Drive to Survive uh, on Netflix on Formula One, they've been hugely, hugely successful and they do whatever about the money that the PGA Tour or Formula One have made from Netflix or from the streaming service. I think the exposure that they give them the insight that you get because you'll always be more connected with a sport when you have some sense of the participants. like this is very anecdotal but i was away on holidays recently with my wife and we watched all or nothing the amazon documentary on arsenal and I got a text from her a couple of weeks later on the friday saying have Arsenal signed anyone yet on deadline day and I've, I've, I've two younger sisters who recently told me that they were going to the hungarian grand prix with a few of their friends and we wouldn't have came from much of a motor sporting household but that is the effect that those kind of documentaries have um, and it's the same with the magic johnson documentary i read Joe's piece last night and actually flicked on the first episode of it and it is brilliant but what struck me straight away was that despite the fact that you know magic johnson was practically retired by the time my interest in you know or would have had any awareness of him as an athlete i sort of already knew the story you know because the NBA, ever since the era of Magic Johnson leading into Michael Jordan, has sold itself really, really well that way. You know, mm. like, like through the 30 for 30 docs and the last waltz, or the the last waltz, the Jordan one, last dance, last dance. I'd have a far better understanding of the the Tri-Pistons Chicago Bulls rivalry than I would of any of the GA rivalries that I sort of like to yeah. investigate and write about. And that's a huge thing for those those sports. So I just to get back to the live. PGA thing I think it will actually be a huge thing for golf when it comes out because you know you know golf as a global sport that people kind of watch people come in and out of it in majors but I think if if you do have a proper documentary where you get to see the human side and the dynamics of the players at play um away from the manicured press conferences and and the very puffy PR stuff Mm. I think it becomes far more compelling
2: Mm.
0: Well, well, that's the piece, isn't it, that you get. It's the personal side. So take Drive to Survive. So anyone who is interested in Formula One, you're, you're sitting at your telly watching the cars go around the track. Unless you're really interested in Formula One as a sport or the technical, tactical piece of it, you, don't, you can't even really see who's in the cars. So now I've watched Drive to Survive, I, I know the personalities. I'm still not that interested in Formula One as a sport, but I'm interested in the person and the personalities and what's going on. I still can't tell you anything very technical about motorsport but I can name drivers and I can I I have a better sense of the occasions and and it as entertainment rather than another sport I'd watch for the sport itself Mm. rather than the personality. So I think the exact same thing could happen to golf the exact same thing because it's so even it's so long a tournament you know it's not like you watch it in 60 minutes.
2: Yeah, it lends itself perfectly to this kind of documentary as well. Like so I, I love the sport and got to know the characters after. Mm. And, I, and like that enriches your understanding of uh, what you're watching because they have so much time where they're walking down fairways together. And you, if you know the personalities and you're watching body language, like imagine after, Say Patrick Reed was in this Netflix documentary and like we've just listed off pretty interesting things about him and he's just had a pot shot there at McElroy who said is insulting. And now imagine next Sunday they're playing together in a major in the final round. Yeah. Like you're you're all in like Bedron, yeah. half the reason we all like sport is it's just a soap opera. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know. It's the personalities, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, yeah.
2: the it's it's the interactions and you know, golf could make hay if it builds up five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten yeah, big I th- characters.
3: Th- th- a lot of sporting organizations and some of them would be fairly close to home, seem to fail to appreciate um, the what that kind of coverage, like regardless of whether it's a big Netflix documentary or maybe it's just better, sort of a better environment between people who tell stories and the participants itself. You know, a lot of sporting organizations don't really grasp that. They don't really have any great measure of the value of that. Um, you know, like there are some of the greatest, most interesting Athletes have ever come across our GAA players in this country the last twenty years. Really interesting backgrounds that the public would never fully appreciate because the environment isn't really there um, f- for them to kind of give that side of the story. The
2: sense is they are all very private people. I really find what GAA players. I, I, they I, run I do wild.
3: think that's the. I think that's the culture there. Like I've spoken to enough GAA players over the years that would tell you that they would have no problem. Um, Kind of speaking more and telling more stories if everyone else did, but I think it's nearly the culture that is there is that you don't at all, and I, th- I only think it's a shame from the point of view that you know some of the best teams we'll ever see in Gaelic games have kind of come and gone, and all we know them as is the results on the pitch. Mm. You know, like say a team like the Mayo footballers of the last decade, people will say it'd be very unfair if they're only to be judged by their ultimate you know, failure to win in All-Ireland, but it's like, well, what else do you have? You know, you know what I mean? And I think th- like that's, not a t- that's not a criticism of any individuals or teams or players, and, and people should be compelled to contribute to documentaries or feature articles or any of those sort of things. But it's just that it has gone to the point of stalemate now in all of this, and it would take sort of great vision to change ha- how, how that dynamic works.
2: Well, Cliona, you've been involved in like male intercounty coaching ticket, mm. so you'd have a sense of the culture.
0: Well, I think there's there's two things at play. There's one because GAA is such a small ecosystem Mm. that there's definitely a sense of don't say anything because everybody's so close and we're not giving anything away and everything has to be kept private. And where in reality what you're doing in one camp, the people down the road are probably doing the exact same thing. We're all doing relatively the same thing, but the sense of don't give anything away because ev- you're playing against people in college, you might play with them club, everything. So everyone's very connected. So that's one piece. And I think the other piece is, and Colin O'Rourke writes about all-stars today and David Clifford, but he lists all the things that are more important than an all-star. The team, the team, the team, the team, even down to a club. Challenge match is nearly more important than an all-star. So there's definitely a culture where n- we don't like the people who stick stick their head out or do something a little bit different you have to be ultimately loyal to your team and that is more important and don't get too big for your boots and don't say anything you shouldn't say and y- you you d- don't give too much of your individuality because you are part of this unit and this team and i think that is culturally a big thing in the GAA. And, you know?
2: and to be fair, like it's interesting when we're talking about drive to survive and now golf. They are individual sports. Yeah. You're not letting down anybody. Like Patrick Reed coming out saying, and another thing, McElroy, yeah. insulting. He doesn't have to go back to a, a locker room who are playing McElroy's team tomorrow and explain. But
3: himself. that's it. I like. I remember talking to somebody about this a while ago who was still playing at the time, and they said that well, actually, where the pressure comes on, yeah, not to you know to, to disclose things is from everyone else because yeah. because mm-hmm. it is a collective thing. But equally, I was talking to somebody who was part of a very successful ga team recently and it was around the time that the the last dance came out yeah and he said that when you're in it at the time you're so obsessed with becoming better and that journey and being the best and 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 winning but it's only when you see documentaries like that that you think well actually your legacy is always enhanced a bit more mm. if those stories are told like like the kenny team brian cody's Kikenny team will go down as the greatest hurling team of all time and limerick are Going to get close to that themselves, but like if you ask me to sort of think of a hurling team off the top of my head, the last thirty years, I go back to Lucknann and Dalo and Davy Fitz because you had a sense of their personality. You were more invested in that team, despite the fact that you're not from Clare, because you seemed to think that you knew them. Yeah. Now that's a massive kind of that's a massive kind of shift. That's just the way that it went organically. But I'm just saying, I, like I, I think it's like even watching that All or Nothing documentary, you know, it's far. Easier to like Arsenal and Mikel Arteta when you actually saw the human side of what he was doing. When he was in the canteen, slumped over after they lost their fifth game in a row, like you know. Outside it, you just kind of look at the results and say, well, they're, they're good, they're bad, they're paid this. Because well, that's the way we kind of consider it. But uh, yeah, but, but, but when sorry. you do get a sense of the personality, I think, mm-hmm. you know, like when you sit down and talk to a player, you don't expect them to say, well, we're going to play with a sweeper at the weekend. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but, but I think sometimes people have very interesting stories to tell.
0: They, um, they, they definitely do. Uh, but I think, it's, especially in the G8, like we, we do like humility yeah, and we like humility in Ireland as well. And yeah. I think... It's it's a brave person that pushes back against that um, in in this country in general and and even in, with GA and everything we're getting more professional and all this sort of stuff, but we don't. On one hand we like it, but on the other hand we're, we're not too professional, you yeah. know. So it's it's yeah. this and no and notions. Yeah, no and notions. No, feet on the ground <laughs> around yeah. here, you know. So it's it's valuable, but I'm. I'm it'll take a while before we really embrace yeah. doors open Yeah, I, I thought one of,
3: like the, one of the really good ones the last year was the yeah. Blues Sisters one with the Dublin yeah that was great Nicole Owens was very good about her own battles with her mental health and yeah. Sinead uh, um, Finnegan talking about you know how her father dying affected her intercounty career and that's what I mean after that yeah. you, were, you were all in on them
2: absolutely we'll take a short break we'll pick it up on the far side so Conor McKeown Clean O'Connor staying with us we're chatting through The Sunday Papers back in one moment
1: The Sunday Papers
2: on Off The Ball
1: The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball.
2: Now, then you have very welcome back. We're going through the Sunday Papers. it O'Connor and Connor McCone are here in studio. We were just uh, finishing up on all that golf chat and Drive to Survive and the golf documentary series. And you mentioned Joe Raleigh, effusive on the Magic Johnson documentary, which is on Apple TV. You were saying there during the news, thumbs up, really good.
3: I watched the first episode of it last night. I thought it was excellent. Yeah. But again, like. I don't think you need a whole lot to make those documentaries very watchful because they th- like at their core they're all built around glitz and glamour anyway yeah um, and Magic Johnson was obviously i mean there th- somebody said I think somebody says at the start of it that still he is the biggest athlete or the most respected or loved athlete in. Los Angeles, which is fair going considering mm. they went through the Shaq and Kobe and even um, LeBron is there now. So mm. that kind of shows what a monumental car And even Michael Jordan in the documentary makes the point that he said people say that Michael Jordan was the guy who turned um, turned the NBA into a kind of a global thing. But he says, but magic had started that already. Right.
2: Wasn't it amazing in the last time sandwich video footage there just was a Jordan? It's just a camera around him at all times. <laughs> <Yes>, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> hanging yeah. out
2: in the locker room before yeah. a game.
0: Yeah, What? like where... Uh, yeah, you'd wonder... Well, you'd wonder for everyone else around those those super, superstars within team sport if there's a camera on you the entire time and I'm sitting beside you. like down, But I guess they just... He's he's the one that that is winning games and mm-hmm. is doing what he needs to do on the, the court. Therefore, do you know what? You can have ten cameras on you. Yeah. And you just keep playing the way you're
3: playing. It's funny though uh, for I don't want to say our generation, but like it's funny for people who who didn't have. Like who came from a generation where every sport isn't televised all the time, mm. the things that kind of are still dear to you. Like there will always be a special place in my heart for Italian football purely because James Richardson on a Saturday morning and Gazetta Football Italia. Yeah. Um, whereas I, when I try to explain that to younger people now, they're like, well, of course, Italian football is on the television. Every televi- football is on the television. You just have to kind of go and watch it.
2: I was just thinking what you were saying there about how if you were to think of a hurling team from the last 30 years, you'd think of Locknan and Daly and these guys. And... There's probably never been more of a need for these behind the scenes documentary, because if you think of Nan, the first interview I think of is, we're going to do it. <laughs> Half time in Northern final, out of his mind, in, you know, sweat pouring off, we're yeah. going to do it.
1: Yeah.
2: Whereas now everything is so homogenised and controlled. And it's a Jim Gavin press conference at 8am. Actually, the media don't really get to know the personalities of the mm-hmm. characters anymore. So there's now a real need to go behind the scenes and get some smidgen of personality and reality because everything is so controlled with the media now.
0: Yeah, I think we just don't know how to do it yet. We're, yeah. we're, 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 we're kind of afraid of it because we're not really that adept of you, someone is a little bit more open and a little bit more emotional and oh my God, it's great. And then they're like, oh God, did it? then they're looking back at it and saying, did I say anything wrong? Or everyone's incredibly self-conscious. So you'd be hoping that people will find a rhythm where they could speak a little bit more relaxed and openly and not be so cagey because a lot of it, it, it doesn't like that is an iconic we're going to do it moment. And it didn't like that didn't really there was no negative side to that. That was just somebody in the moment in their sports environment having huge, huge confidence and going for it. And mm. it was sure, it's a lovely thing, you know, and there's no danger in sharing a bit of that every now and then.
2: Mm. So let's move on then. Uh, Graham Potter features across the papers, as you might imagine. Page four of the Sunday Times. Jonathan Northcroft is about the best piece I think we picked out on Graham Potter and taking over at Chelsea. And I suppose the the point he's trying to make, Jonathan Northcroft, that is cleaner, is that there has been a a change of emphasis at Chelsea because it would be very easy to look at the sacking of Thomas Tuchel and say, wow, they're just continuing in the vein of Abramovich, which is to be ruthless when it comes to sacking managers. But it seems what Todd Bowley and co are trying to put in place is more of a holistic atmosphere and environment at the club. So, for instance, Todd Polly, the new man in charge at Chelsea, is talking about Potter and he's saying he has all the IQ but he also has the EQ. And this is him talking about Potter's emotional intelligence. And the piece starts with how when he was a coach in Sweden that Potter uh, worked with somebody called Bran Norrie, a player who had very troubled background and uh, Potter really worked with the person and got you know great things out of him on the pitch. And there is a, a point here where Northcroft says English clubs are increasingly going for the embodiment of a soft, soulful, new management style. And this is exactly the shift that Todd Bowley want. And Thomas Tuchel is more of the uh, old school uh, approach. And interestingly, actually, a story is told about Todd Bowley boarding the team bus after Chelsea lost 4-0 to Arsenal on tour to offer reassuring words to the players. Tuchel was scoffing at the speech when Bowley left the bus. Potter is holistic and relaxed about others having a say. The biggest takeaway from my interview with him, Northcroft interviewed um, Potter a couple of months ago. It was a really good interview. The biggest uh, takeaway from my interview with him was that I had rarely met a manager with less ego. And he says typical is his decision to retain Anthony Barry, a rising coach who we obviously know here. But uh, it would be tempting, Norcross says, for a coach to come in and sweep the board. But Potter sees Barry as an asset. He's spoken to the Belgian manager, Roberto Martinez, to get a picture of his abilities. The question is, will Bowley's group stick with the culture shift if Potter and his slow burn ways take longer than big clubs are normally comfortable with to deliver success? Part of their reasoning after ditching Tuchel was that after his 100 days, they noticed that the first 50 days were way better than the second 50 days. Very black and white stuff. But they've told uh, Potter that even if he doesn't make Champions League football this year, he's not going to get the sack. So that's all in North Cross' piece. So, again, at a glance you would think, wow, Todd Bowley, as ruthless as Abramovich. There's going to be new managers every six months at Chelsea. But actually in Potter, they're trying to go in for uh, something akin to a five year project and beyond. Now, we could be reading this out in uh, six months time when Chelsea Tank and Potter gets the bullet, who knows?
0: Um, This is interesting. So all this stuff about holistic coaching, it is everywhere in coach education, coach development now at the minute. I was at something in Sport Ireland last week. It was all about how to look after the person. Uh, 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 It was about trauma in sport and trauma informed environments and how you as coaches basically look after people and someone at that made a very good point and they were saying like if our world is about high performance how can you possibly expect somebody to be performing at their best if we're not if at, at a personal level we're not minding them or we're not they're, they're not in in their optimum space and we can throw all the technical tactical sports science stuff at it, at them we want but if we don't if that piece fundamentally isn't right they'll never ever get to what they are their highest performance could be. So it is it is absolutely out there in coach education at the minute and coach development and, and everything about it. However, the, it always comes back to the same thing. You thought maybe in six months time Potter will be gone because when you're in those situations, you, you have to be, there are times when you, you're, you're making decisions between what is the immediate thing, mm. the immediate match at the weekend, the immediate championship versus what I know is better long term. And how much time am I willing to wait? Because you, it, it, Potter's style is all about relationships. It's all about trust. You don't you don't do that in 50 days. So then it's the decision makers. Are they actually true to their word? Are they really meaningful? Or or when will their patience run out? And if a player is difficult, but Potter is saying no, I think I think we can. This this will get somewhere eventually. Are they going to believe him? Are they not? So it's everybody's talking about it, but some people have more patience for it than others, because it's it's not it's not an easy way nor a quick way. You know,
2: mm. and at these coaching conferences, so holistic coaching has become the buzzword in the industry over the last couple of years. Yeah,
0: athlete centred, holistic coaching, providing the right environment, because like some of the sports science stuff, I shouldn't be so uh, flippant about it, but of course, there's a science to it, but but it's 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 sciency, you know. You run X, you do this, your aerobic system will improve, and it's it's science based. But the managing relationships and uh, making sure someone feels comfortable and and trusts the team and trusts the player that they can go out and give of themselves the best version of themselves, mm. that's a whole other piece, and and you can't write a A plus B equals C for that when you're dealing with a human, the human personality of it.
2: And do you buy into it? Because I suspect there would be definitely an old school quotient that b- would be just rolling their eyes at this kind of talk. I
0: do. I do buy into it. Yeah. I, and I've seen it work both as a as a, from a player's point of view and from the from a coaching point of view. It, It, it does take time and it did like from a coach's point of view and it, that coach athlete relationship, it's. There is no one size fits all. Fits all, and you do have a responsibility as a coach to figure out how, what is going to make this person give their best on the pitch, on the track, where wherever it is, on the golf course. Because if that's if your job is in high performance, that's your job to support them to play at their best. And what's right for Joe isn't right for Connor. Do, do you know? And that's your job as a coach. That is
2: so. Um time demanding on a coach. I I talked to a couple of the Limerick hurlers even Mm. the last couple of months. And how often would John Kylie talk to you? Like a lot of them have said, well, there's so many of us, not that often. Mm. Now, Caroline Curd's there and they go to her and and that's John Kylie delegating that aspect of coaching. But I mean, Mm. to try and build individual relationships with so many players is a huge ask of management, I would think. I remember um, Paul McGrath talking about Graham Taylor would bring him into his office routinely and just chat to him and really get to know him. And, you know, Paul McGrath, obviously an extraordinary player and a person who probably needed attention and care. But I don't think Graham Taylor could do that for every one of the Aston Villa team. That must be the nightmare scenario for a coach where you're trying to decide who do I need to get stuck into here and who can I just let them self-manage?
0: Yeah, I I had a conversation with a hurling coach maybe about two years ago and we were kind of talking about that exact thing. Right. And we, we both made the point as it the, the kind of uh, the self-sufficient players or the low-maintenance players we're both saying they're actually easy to forget because you realise he's playing really well and he's taking along and he's a great trainer and this, that and the other and I haven't made the effort with him. I keep going after these problematic guys or whatever, the pe- person who's coming back from injury whereas this guy who's, who's who's doing well, how am I making sure I'm not checking in with him? I'm fighting fires or what's the immediate thing? So mm. that's the important of a, I suppose, a support team, isn't it? That there, there's more than one person and there's more than one person to build relationships because you can have stronger and weaker relationships with people. Mm. It's the nature of it. You know? Because mm.
3: as far back as 10 years ago, Jim Gavin was citing Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, you know, that study where you know, people will fulfill their potential in things that they might consider hobbies if the various building blocks of the rest of their life were stable and secure. So he always emphasised the need for players to be on top of their college work or in stable working environments and to have their own personal relationships in good working order. And when those things happened, like it it has proven, you know, through studies that players will focus more, to be in a better frame of mind, to be more positive and to have more time to take ownership of the thing themselves. Because ultimately, I think, the nature of modern coaching, certainly coaching over the last 10 years, is less prescribed and more about empowering players to kind of do it themselves on the pitch and to to figure things out. And this does seem to be something that Graham Potter has a very strong understanding of, going by the various anecdotes that are in the pieces about him today that he understands that the player is a human and like a human's ability to do anything to a high level will depend on their peace of mind, yeah. their levels of happiness, their levels of comfort in their surroundings and all of those various different things. And um, I think most people who haven't been involved in a so, so, like an elite sporting team over the last 10 years or 20 years would be surprised at how prevalent this kind of methodology is used mm. in coaching. Mm. Um, because anybody that I ever come across that. that, that this is the way the players kind of function now.
2: Is it? And what would be said, cleaner within coaching conferences, for instance, about the Ferguson approach, where fear and threat is a big part of his methodology?
0: Um, I, th- I think people would agree, or there would be a st- there would be an appreciation that there. Sometimes there are times when you have to be a little bit more direct and and sometimes a well-timed, maybe not throwing something at some somebody, but a well-timed kind of hairdryer treatment-esque thing is can actually have an impact. Mm-hmm. And if that, so if I'm a player on a team and where it's half time and we're not particularly performing, and you go into a dressing room and maybe you feel like as a coach or maybe you feel like I just need someone needs to light a rocket under us. And and we're OK and we're all able to take that because the general environment is is good. You know, so at times there is a a time where it is absolutely appropriate uh, for a coach to say, listen, this isn't good enough or this falls below our standards or our expectations. That's that's fine if the bedrock is ultimately one of of t- trust and 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 good quality relationships. Yes. I think motivating somebody generally, motivating people by fear or or that that really aggressive tactic can be. Sometimes it, it works in the short term, uh, or works for some players. But I think generally it can run out of steam, or you know, because it's only one way. So you're you're motivating an entire group just by just by fear.
2: Well, and also it's very easy to caricature Ferguson's methodology. I mean, yes, he was sure. not just a ranter and a raver yes. as all the players would talk about. He would uh, sit with them one-on-one. He would know about their personal problems. He would know the names of all their families. He would be very invested in them as people. Heard Gary Neville just talking recently that, you know, Ferguson's team talks would often bring in the players' grandparents and that would always get to Neville because he had a very close relationship with his grandparents. Yeah. So this wasn't just you get out there and effing win yes, yeah. or you're out of this yeah. club. Yeah. It was... Yeah. You know, far more yeah.
3: nuanced than. Yeah. But even in Air the dryer. in the context of uh, Potter, which we love, I think a lot of people be very interested to see how he does, um, just because of this, the the kind of classification or specification of manager he is, and the kind of the culture or uh, you know the practices at Chelsea over the years. So he's been brought in to kind of establish a culture, which is a very broad term that a lot of people use without really understanding. But I think the the point of it is. Like they've they've highlighted the number of managers that the big six in England have gone through since 2013. So Arsenal have had three, and Chelsea have had 14. Mm. So if you've had 14 managers in 19 years, like the idea of establishing a culture, like that's that's clearly not the club's policy under the previous owners because you just would not have a time. And sometimes you get the feeling when a Premier League team appoints a manager. They're bringing them in to knock a tune out of what's there already. But that's been grossly successful for Chelsea. Yeah, but it, like, so, but if... They've won
2: two Champions Leagues, they've won league titles, they've destroyed, like, so but, Arsenal with their three managers, they've destroyed them. So maybe
3: longevity's overrated. But think of the money that Chelsea have sunk into all of that because sure. every year they're buying the most expensive shiny toys for them. Look at Klopp, look at Guardiola. Their first seasons with Liverpool and Manchester City were by no means spectacular. Mm. And that was the time that they were undergoing the same kind of culture change within the club that would ultimately lead to the success that they have brought to their clubs whereas with Chelsea going by those figures they never would have been given the opportunity they would have been cut adrift before they ever got to that
2: point No that's true and the piece mentions Todd Bowley obviously is involved with the Dodgers in LA as well and they've had Dave Roberts as their baseball manager since 2016 and they've reached three World Series under his direction so like, there's real stability in the culture with the LA Dodgers. I do love that story, by the way, of Todd Bowley getting on the bus yeah. and saying, guys, don't worry about it, and then Tugel scoffing at it after he leaves. You can <laughs> see why that marriage was not going to last very long.
3: Even watching that, that All or Nothing doc- documentary as well. It's made a big impression on you. Yeah, <laughs> it did. But it was very interesting about the story of Arsenal selling Pierre Aubameyang because effectively they paid him to go away. Yeah, And he was the top scorer at the club, he was the one goal scorer. And at a time when Arsenal were finding goals hard to come by. But it was very clear from watching the documentary that the point of getting rid of Aubameyang was. What Arteta was trying to establish in terms of the behaviours of the players that came automatically, he was having the exact opposite mm. impact on it. So outwardly you sit there and say, well, they're it hard to score goals and they've just paid a guy who does that by reflex to leave to go to another European club but actually when you got into it and you saw that the effect that it had you were taking out the biggest guy who was maybe symptomatic of old habits that you are trying to get rid of mm. and I think that comes back down to the idea of what Potter is trying to achieve
2: well chance. he'd be thrilled with his new signing up front Aubameyang yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what he needs yeah. we've just signed this guy you need to make it work yeah. so uh, yeah interesting times pay him to go to Barcelona yeah quite a few pieces talking about very Pau's pow- uh, Reign as well uh, back page Jamie Sweeney's drawing the parallels with Jack Charlton and Fear of and, you know, uh, foreign coach and low ebb and coming in and making a big difference. And he says Powell can complete the analogy by emulating Charlton's feat of 33 years ago. So, 1989, Charlton brought Ireland to a first World Cup when they beat Malta. It was three years and six months since his first game in charge. Powell will have been in charge for three years and one month when Ireland play Austria or Scotland on October the 11th. So, she's getting lots of plaudits across the papers.
0: She is, yeah, and and deservedly so. And we're talking about Grain Potter uh, and giving giving time. R- remember when Vera Powell started, and they were what eleven games, uh, defeat after defeat after defeat. And I love the way she talks about that period of time where, yes, we were playing better opposition, but we had to, we had to set the bar higher. We had to, and we had to have faith in what we were trying to do. Mm. And you would hope that they're at a they're at a tipping point now where the, that should and could all pay off and if you listen to any players talk about her in terms of that those building relationships and trust that seems to be there in spades within that within that team and maybe that's the platform that's allowing them to be have a little bit more belief to, to push forward the the close games that they would lose, they're now winning them. You know so the the I think she is shifting the needle. Mm. Um and I know the 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 qualification route is complicated but um, I th- you, you would hope that they were in a position that they could pull off something significant for the group.
2: The sense seems to be that to beat it'll most likely be Austria he'll beat Scotland they'll have to go away to Austria who reached the Euro quarterfinals Boys, think, in the yeah. summer that will be difficult but then the expectation is that when they go to this Uh, bizarrely complicated tournament in the new year they will be amongst the strongest teams there so they have a a really good chance of making a World Cup via that route so it all remains to be seen but uh, yeah Virpah getting a lot of really positive press coverage across the papers today
1: The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball The Sunday Papers on Off
2: The Ball Uh, The URC not getting much positive Coverage. So, the URC starts again on Friday. The rugby season is uh, back with a bang. And we have Brendan Fanning, Neil Francis, Peter O'Reilly across uh, various pages talking about the press conference which was held during the week. The URC chief executive was launching the league but also talking about the decision to partner up with Qatar Airways. And, I mean, so, Brendan Fanning, first of all... uh, The headline sums up his point, cash the cheque, just spare us your values. So I think his point is, fair enough. Everyone's doing this. You're now doing this. So the byline is forget the notions of rugby's moral high ground in the wake of Qatar deal. And he's saying if you're taking the cash, then just spare us all the press release talk about legacy and values and integrity. Just uh, be honest about the whole situation. And he kind of eviscerates Martin Anouai, the um, chief executive of the URC. Peter O'Reilly in the Sunday Times is very similar as well. He just had a smaller piece than Brendan Fanning on page six. And again, it was a very similar theme. He said, uh, guitar links and World Cup plans spoil URC build up. He says, uh, it might have been preferable if Martin and Ai, the URC's chief executive, had admitted that they were merely following the lead of other sports in putting commerce ahead of ethics, or indeed following the lead of World Rugby, who have an ongoing partnership with Emirates, another airline owned by a state whose government has continued to commit human rights violations. Instead, Ai spoke of bringing rugby's values to Qatar. I mean, it, of all the things to try and say. Uh, he spoke of bringing rugby's values to Qatar, which sounded suspiciously like the old justification used by teams that toured South Africa during the apartheid regime. And we know how that worked out. Neil Francis is also writing about it. He's, he's France is a slightly different tack. He's kind of like, on the human rights issue, he's kind of saying, well, spare us the hypocrisy if we look at countries all around the world.
3: Yeah, and like I, in a way, I kind of agree with Neil Francis to, to a degree because, you know, Okay, The Premier League didn't go ahead today, but if like a lot of people will be watching the Premier League today in stadiums named after these same airlines and you know jerseys that have sponsors that are gambling companies, and regardless of what sport you go into, and Malachi Clarkin did a very good piece recently about the sponsorship, you know, banking sponsorship in Gaelic Games as well. Yeah, um, you know, there's a reason that the like sports washing is is effectively another name for sponsorship, and part of the reason that companies and different organizations will sponsor sport is because it's a very wholesome brand to be associated with and if you want your brand to be associated with something wholesome you 're trying to get, deliver a message and the the you know the the Qatar stuff and the saudi stuff it's very i think to us in this part of the world it it strikes us as being very um There's something a a little bit too blunt about it because Mm. it it seems to be coming from a very unashamed place. Like the money that they throw at the golf, for instance, is so big that it's very clear that they're not trying to build a product. They're not trying to recoup uh, their investment. But by the same token, like sport is taking money from all sorts of shady kind of corners of the world. And if you want to go back even further and talk about people who are trying to, you know, carefully manicure their, their image by associating with sport like watch the Super Bowl and watch the display of American military regalia that that starts off at the very beginning of that. Mm. There's a reason why they do that sort of show before a Super Bowl and it's to kind of glorify the American military. So I suppose the point that a lot of people make here is that there's money coming in from all sorts of places. Why is it that when it becomes... Um, a Qatari thing or a Saudi thing, we are drawing the line here.
2: He says, if we were really worried about human rights abuses and states that subjugate and oppress their citizens, then World Rugby would have to expel over half of its affiliated members. Take a look at the list. There are continuous flagrant abuses of human rights here and in the Western world. So no, I've no issue with Qatar or Qatar Airways or any other Middle Eastern airlines who want to throw a few quid at this strange game.
3: Yeah, and that's fair enough. to an extent, but, but I think it, it's slightly different when there are, it's slightly different when there are corporations who are trying to use sponsorship, and um, because you know what they're trying to do, they're trying to make themselves more profitable as organizations. But I think when it become, when, it, when, it's, when it states, and I think this is maybe the reason the Newcastle the man City stuff, the live stuff and now the rubby stuff kind of sticks in the crop mm-hmm. because it's very clear that what's happening here is actual nations themselves. Um, and the regimes are trying to attach themselves and trying to kind of, well, launder their image uh, to the rest of the world. So it's a, it's it's almost more deliberate than profiteering, which which kind of makes it seems even more clear.
2: There is one point where he says that um, Manny pointed to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul as a reason why our pure as the driven snow democracies should have nothing to do with these heinous states. And he says, wondering which state can cast the first stone. And he says in this island, Veronica Geer and Martin O'Hagan were murdered before the turn of the century, only very recently, Lyra McKee had her life ended, dispatched by new IRA active service members. It says in the UK, eight journalists killed 23 in the States. Does it matter whether it's state sponsored or not? I would say in that instance, of course it does.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of the, the stranger paragraphs. To this uh, it because, does matter. Because neither uh, the new IRA, as he puts it here, or the people who murdered Veronica Kieran or Martin O'Hagan were pumping money into sport to try and um, make their make their um, actions seem uh, palatable. palatable to, to yeah. the rest of the no, world. Th-
2: so. th- that point was odd, I thought. But on on the point about like which democracy or which country wants to throw the first stone, I do accept it to a large point. Now, there's something just so obviously egregious about, for instance, the way Qatar have behaved towards migrant workers at the building of World Cup stadiums, their LGBTQ plus uh, attitudes. Uh, they are just very out of kilter uh, with... Uh, how most of us, I think, see the world and you are sponsoring a tournament in this part of the world as well. And, you know, I saw Rory O'Connor make the point uh, during the week that uh, the URC were very quick in all that kind of uh, corporate way to kind of reach out to the Leinster player come out as gay not so long ago and, and put an arm around and say, mm. we're so thrilled for you. But on the other hand, let's let's be under no illusion economics rule here and they'll take the money and pass on the ethics. So, anytime you see those tweets in the future should future rugby players come out as gay and the URC rush to put their arm around them, there's a reality here as well cleaner.
0: Massively, and it's it's all this stuff around how we perceive sport and it's even an individual player as such a role model, at the end of the day they're just a person who's good at a particular sport or or this the, the purest notion of, of sport, that it's it's uh, it, it's that that wholesome thing and, and very pure activity. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, like, it's a massive commercial global entity. It's huge. Yeah. And the, these sort of negotiations and compromises and ethical things, I mean, they're going on in every single walk of life. Yeah. And now it happens in sport, and we're like, oh, my God, this is horrific because it goes against our values. And I and it maybe it is there's something different your your point about when it's states or nations versus versus corporate companies um, but at the end of the day how, how how do you draw the line now that now that the URC is what it is a global competition yeah. where where is the point that you say no, we want to keep these really traditional values of rugby uh, but we've got to make this work on a global scale like it's you, those two, I'm not sure those two things can coexist where. The what you outlined, Joe, like all the very and kind of unashamedly. No, this is how we do things over here, and these people, we're, we're not going to give them any rights, and that's just the way we do. But we're happy to give you the money. Mm. Like it's it's just it's it's a rock and a hard place. I don't see how you how those things can coexist. You either say, right, well, international sport has changed, and it doesn't have the same values at its bedrock as previous. You know,
3: no. I think part of it too was you know, the URC, not to make excuses for them, but I think a lot of people who are involved in sport that will have offers on the table from these kind of sources will now point to the burst dam that's in front of them and say, sorry, you know, Manchester City, one of the biggest clubs in Europe, the World Cup is in Qatar this December. Yeah. they've taken this biggest competition in all of. It. Like this talk of, of Saudi Arabia bidding for the next tournament, I would imagine an Olympic bid isn't too far away either. So you know, somebody like the URC maybe in the in the scale of all of this might look at themselves as being a small bit insignificant, um, and that's part of the problem now because it, it it has been this this practice of taking money. I think the World Cup was the big one.
2: Oh, we're at the point of critical mass now. Yeah. This won't be mentioned again about the URC. This yeah. is like a week out from the tournament starting, this is definitely you know fresh on the heels of the press conference during the week and the announcement, that's it now. Because people are just increasingly immune to it and I don't think anybody's that outraged, I suspect, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it, it, it suits for uh, the columns this week and then it's done, I would think. Uh, Neil France does make a very good point, though, about like the URC and the league itself and, and uh, I totally agree with him in this, where he, he's, he's basically talking about like how, you know, he refers to annualised bluster about how, you know, potentially Munster-Leinster matches might be on in Chicago. And he was saying, most regular season derbies between Leinster and Munster are populated now by AIL players. The big one is anything but but you try and promote it in the US with anything except frontliners on both sides and you'll get the gate. And he said, if Anuai was keen to improve his league, he would try and coordinate the fixtures with Andy Farrell so you could maximise the game's potential. If Johnny Sexton plays only six URC matches a season, make sure that two of them are the Munster game. There have been more duds than doozies and the patience and understanding of the dyed in the wall Irish fan is wearing thin. Don't promise or even hint if you can't deliver. And I think that's a fair point about the league as well, so... Yeah, URC under fire, I would say, across the papers. But I don't, I, I just don't see it becoming an ongoing stick that they'll. No, be people forget about with. it
0: next week. That's the reality.
2: Yeah, I would think so. Uh, Colin O'Rourke, you mentioned earlier on, Clean is writing about the All Stars and uh, basically says what everybody reckons: if David Cliver doesn't get Footballer of the Year, it's going to be the shock of all shocks.
0: Yeah, I, I can't see any other option coming there. How um, many
2: Footballer of the Year awards is David Cliver going to win?
0: Uh, more, potentially more than one, I'd say. I would think I so. Know.
2: Do you have to give it to an All Ireland winning player? When's oh. the, who's the last non-All Ireland winning player to get Footballer of the Year?
3: Andy Moran, 2017. That was 17.
2: Oh,
0: I'm very good. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: So what happens sometimes? So the, the for people who mightn't know, the, the All Star Selection Committee consists of journalists. Are you on it? No. So, so in the interest of full disclosure, they will pick the three-person shortlist. Why do you feel you haven't been invited? <laughs> <laughs> So they'll pick the three-person shortlist. After that, it goes to a vote of players. So there have there have been a couple of occasions, and I think when Andy Moran won it, now not that he wasn't a worthy winner, but there were two Dublin players nominated that year, and Dublin had won the All Ireland. And sometimes what happens is the Dublin vote will get split between the two candidates, and then the third candidate. Now this year it would seem like it's the opposite, that if there was any doubt, and there is none, that David Clifford is going to get the votes. The other two players that are nominated are both Galway players, so even if there is a kind of an anti carry vote, if, if, so, if something like that existed among players, it would be split between the two go, to go with It was
2: Barrett. McDade and Shane Walsh.
3: McDade and Shane Walsh. Yeah. But I think with Clifford, it, it, there's, there's something so sort of universally appreciated about the way he plays football that I think he will just be a very popular footballer of the year, even amongst opposition players.
2: It's, it's hard to think of a player so universally lauded now as, you know, being talked about as the greatest ever. Yeah. At his age. Yeah. It's nuts. And like not by, by very like sober, astute judges who aren't rushing to give plaudits generally, but they are saying this guy could be the best ever. Yeah. And we're watching it unfold.
0: Yeah. And it, it and that's it that's exciting, isn't it? Seeing yeah. seeing someone who's so and who seems to be so comfortable in it in so many ways. You you've definitely seen cases before, maybe not to this level, but where a young player comes through or or younger and all this talk, and you can see that they're not really comfortable. He seems to nearly thrive on it. Mm. You know, he wants the ball. He, in all those pressure situations, he doesn't care if there's three, four, five players around him. It's give me the ball. And, it's, it, and he also seems to be very humble as well and sure is not perfect. That's, That's exactly what we, what we want. Don't do any documentaries. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> as long as he doesn't do documentaries. documentary, he's Keep the head it. down. Yeah, yeah. Jack yeah. O'Connor gave an interview after the final, t- speaking about him. And wherever they met up on the morning of the All-Ireland Final, he said he had a quick chat with him getting on the bus and Clifford was standing there drinking a coffee and he said like he hadn't a care in the world. So I think his personality lends itself to being the go-to guy in pressure situations because it doesn't weigh heavily on his shoulders. Mm. The only good person I can ever remember really having this kind of level of whatever excitement or anticipation about was Joe Canning, you know, because Canning was asked into the Galway Senior Squad as a minor by Gerlach Nann. By the time he came into the Senior Squad, he'd already won three All-Ireland minor titles, and was it 2-12 that he scored that day against Cork, mm. who was just a phenomenal yeah. start, and, and every time you were going to see anytime any time you got your weekend mark and you're going to Galway versus whatever, you were generally going, this is going to be brilliant, I'm going to go and see Canning. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Clifford, because he can do things, like we've seen outstanding players who've been the best player in the country, but there have been some modified version of a player who came before them, had the same skill set, or played the game in the same way. Well, I've never seen anybody do no. the things that Clifford does.
2: I was in Kerry during the week and I was driving by Fossa GEA Club. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a wonderful thing, obviously, but it just seems so incongruous that, like, Clifford's playing yeah. a lot of his games in there. Yeah. Beautiful club and yeah. lovely clubhouse. But I it was like, that's the pitch where Clifford plays. Yeah,
0: yeah. but it. it you, you would hope over the next couple of years that he he keeps that ease and, and sense of self that he seems to have um, as Hopefully his career continues, and and you would think that this this Kerry team is getting. You, you, you can't see any major changes happening over the next year no, or two.
3: the only thing about it is looking looking at it like a team that's on top looks like it's always going to be on top yeah. until it's not. You know, like a few years ago, it would have been impossible to envisage a season when Brian Fenton didn't finish with an All Star, and now mm-hmm. he's gone through two. You know, so yeah. it does occasionally happen. But I think if when Clifford gets his All Star this year, I think he'll be the youngest footballer ever to have four All-Stars to his name. I think Tommy Walsh might have been younger in Hurling. Is this his fourth All-Star? Fourth All-Star in his fifth season playing football for Kerry. Because so,
2: so, um. a rook does ask where do you rank an All-Star? Below in All-Ireland. There's only one All-Star winner in the room here. <laughs> so let's see. You can, you can tell us. Where should an All-Star rank? Below in All-Ireland he says definitely. Below a county championship medal with your club he says certainly Below a national league medal with your county of course Below a provincial championship with your county naturally Below a league medal with your club he says without a shadow of a doubt Where do you have all, your All-Star? Top
0: Yeah 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 <laughs> Top it's all about me Yeah absolutely But that that's the thing isn't that But that is the narrative in that—that. That's yeah, they want the
2: truth Where do you have <laughs> your All-Star? Really?
0: In my, it's on my my mother's windowsill That's okay, where it is good. Yeah uh, I think she appreciates it more than me. Um,
2: really, is not a big thing for you. Uh,
0: it, uh, I, it, it is, it is a big thing. It, it the longer. Because
2: you texted me this morning to say, could you introduce me as All Star oh, winner? Can Kate I now, bring uh, it? O'Connor. Can
0: I take the coffee cup out and put the All Star there?
2: Yeah. Uh, would, it, would it be above a club county medal?
0: Oh, I don't think so. No, I don't an, think an so
2: because um, best in your position in the entire country.
0: Yeah, but the the a, a club county medal, all the stuff around that the the crack around that is pretty good. Mm. Um, the, I think the longer you are retired, as I am from football, the more you can appreciate it. But at the time, like I I won one of them when I don't, I can't remember which defeat to Cork it was. But it, after that, you you'd, you'd give up a hundred of them to to win that one game against Cork. How so many do you have? Two.
2: Okay. Yeah. Good.
0: Not 100, yeah.
2: <laughs> so, um, there's a couple of other GA pieces. Clock is con- coming against us a touch. Uh, Michael Clifford in the mail, I know you uh, this caught your eye, Connor. I suspect it's a, an area you're watching with interest and in having to cover. He's writing about the Donegal dilemma and just that slight delay in appointing a manager. A couple of top level counties not appointing managers, and maybe part of the reason why. Dermot Crow is a piece on various uh, player revolts against managers down the years is kind of a typical feature piece that we're going to mm-hmm. see in the second half of the year from GA writers. Um, so I guess the point is county boards have to get these appointments right now. The stakes have never been higher. So who are the main counties we're looking at? Donegal for sure.
3: Donegal, Monaghan and Roscommon. So three of the eight Division One counties next year don't have managers currently. Okay. Um, and okay, Roscommon was, was slightly more recent when Anthony Cunningham stood down but definitely the Donegal and Monaghan situations have gone on so long that it would indicate that they're... I, I don't know if struggling is the right word, but it it, it hasn't been straightforward. It's or is it just the that there's no rush? Like, we're only in September. Well, there might be a touch of that too, but, you know, in the Monaghan situation, there has been plenty of people interviewed a long time ago. Right. Um, and, and there's a couple of people who've kind of turned it down as well. So so it is people turning it down as well? as, as I think you know. so. Like, it's, you know, it's such a big... Such a such a big undertaking. The point that Michal Clifford makes in his piece here um is that Donegal the po- uh, so he says it here, the post should still engender interest from the brightest and best managers out there. And it should. You know, Donegal are a perennial division one team. They have one of the most, you know, incredible players we've ever seen in Michael Murphy. They've a lot of good young players, they've a lot of the elements you'd need to go into having a successful team. Um but for some reason they don't seem to be like, Malachi O'Rourke was the person that a lot of people had pegged for that job, and, and the indications are that Donegal County Board would have loved Malachy O'Rourke to take the job, but he doesn't seem to be interested. And the talk now is about Martin McHugh, and Michal makes the point, um, McHugh's low profile over recent weeks in local media, where he is a popular pundit, uh, has invited speculation that he's trying to avoid asking the question which everyone is asking, which would make, would make perfect sense. But I, I did a piece a couple of weeks ago about the difficulties that come with appointing a manager and I spoke to a lot of people in different county boards who were either serving officers or former officers Mm -hmm. and a lot of them spoke because um no, a fair few spoke off the record on the condition of anonymity and nearly every single one of them told you that it was the hardest part of the job because the hoops that you have to jump through to find suitable candidates to figure out if they were in it for the right reasons to match whatever because you know there's there's a huge financial element to it too you know whether it comes down to paying the manager like the cost of a management team you know it has to be included you know the the, the coaches and all the facilities that kind of go into it mm-hmm. and then getting the true the the democracy the internal democracy in each county um it's a, it's a massive thing and i'm not surprised that we're in a situation where there's three Inter- three teams that would you would say would have strong chances of at least winning a provincial title next year and yeah. will certainly compete in Division 1 um, that haven't put the final touches on their appointments yet. And cleaner
2: listeners will know I'm sure you were part of Maddie Kenny's Dublin hurling setup. Would that um, have encouraged you to get involved again at inter-county level or were the demands such that you think wow I really have to think about it again?
0: Um, I guess I'm slightly different That my my career is coaching so uh, you're used to the demands in whatever sense it is. Uh, like I don't have, I'm not a teacher and I don't have another job during the day or whatever, which other people are in that scenario. Um, but the demands are unbelievable. For for like we talk about dual career players, the dual career coaches. Yeah. So like M- Manny Kenny's an engineer um, and a very good one and a successful one. Y- you know, so so there's there's so much to consider from a coaches, managers point of view in terms of that undertaking. And now there's huge budgets behind it. There's huge e- expectations you have to find. So they we might want you as a manager, but who's your backroom team? And do you have this, this, this and this? And no, then then we don't want you or you want to do something a little different. We don't have the budget or the facilities to do that. So it's it's hugely complicated, I think. Yeah. And it, it's actually OK for me because it's my career.
2: So you were you're hired and paid to coach. Yeah, so so Even uh, within inter-county level?
0: So I would be from the at- athlete development side in the GA. So all all the sports science, the, f- the physical side. And depending on the sport and depending on the rest of the backroom team, you can be sliding a little bit more into the sport-specific stuff, um, be it football or hurling, to try and blend the two together. Okay. Um, that, that would be how my role usually goes.
3: Okay, But even th- 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 just talking about the turnover of managers as well would suggest that it, it's a very... It's a short-lived thing. So, Colin Collins is now the longest-serving football manager, and he is basically a freak now. In 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 the the last twelve months, twenty-four of the thirty-two counties have changed their manager. So, between the either for the start of the season just finished or for the start of next season, Mm. there there have been twenty-four of the thirty-two football counties have made a managerial appointment. And in hurling, of the eleven. Lee McCarthy counties, six of them will have changed between the end of this season and the start of next year. Yeah. So like that just kind of shows that it's a, you know, it's it, it, it's not a long-term thing. No, people, well, like, people go in and give it a crack and throw everything at it. And yeah. and, and the number of things that can go wrong from, you know, Darren McCrow's piece today mentions situations where pr- players are unhappy and that's obviously a big problem in the GA because the players in the county are, are the players in the county. Um, or you just don't come up to expectations. Like Michal makes the point here about Donegal um, that they never really got over the 2020 Ulster final defeat to Cavan, mm. um, and that has held them back over the last couple of years. And you know, maybe that's an issue. You know, you could look at the profile of a county and say, well, I'm not sure I'm going to, because there's there's no sure way for your stock to plummet yeah. than to go into a county and not have the desired effect.
2: Well, I suspect most managers now are sitting down with their families, if they have them, and sitting down with employers and saying. This is a two year, three year thing. Yeah, I'm going to give it hell for the two, three years and then I'll come straight out of it and we can get back to normal life. But in the meantime, this is going to take precedence and it's a bigger conversation than we have time for. But I would suspect that's why a lot of players, you know, go back to Graham Potter and we're talking about holistic environments and everything. They're probably been managed by managers who deep down in their um, private thoughts are saying, I don't really care if this player is playing in six or seven years time. I need this player to play through these injuries now to get me to an All-Ireland so I can get out of here in two or three years. And I'm not sure it's a healthy balance because you've managers in it for the short term and you've players maybe started their careers who would still like to be playing in 10 years being flogged.
0: Yeah, it it's a challenging one, competing interests and, and that's that's for sure. And and imagine you were talking about players high performing, so I'm a I'm a intercounty manager and I, I run my own business and I'm coming to training and I'm trying to manage all these people and the stress of my own thing mm. my own business and my own job, it's 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 hugely challenging for them. Really, really
2: Yeah. Just need good expenses. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, Savannah McCarthy has done a brilliant interview, by the way, with Carl Dennehy and it starts off with her as the six year old girl from Lestol growing up in the travelling community and how she's now in her mid 20s and playing for Ireland. It's really, really good. It's pages six and seven of the Sunday Independent. We had planned to get to it, but just uh, clock is against us, but just wanted to give it a quick mention. Uh, we are out of time. Thanks so much to Clean O'Connor. Thanks so much to Conor McKeown, the Sunday pay-per-view uh, available to podcast in all the usual places guys thanks a for coming in and giving up thanks your so Sunday much.
1: The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball